1 Timothy chapter 2. Um, we we're going to actually look at the first, um, we're gonna, I'm going to read the first 11 verses, but then I'm only going to preach the, the first eight. And so uh, a pretty big chunk, but nevertheless. All right. 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes, and he says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a quiet, a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It instructs us, it points us to you, it teaches us what you have done for us, it teaches us who you are, what you have done for us, who we are to be in light of that, Lord. Lord, we're thankful for such a beautiful text such as this. We've, we've actually just sung it. We think about you, Jesus, being our mediator. So Jesus, I pray for us. I pray for us in the room who have never heard the gospel, the good news. They've never really heard it. I pray today that as they hear it, that you might grant repentance to those that hear it, that have yet to repent. And that by an exercise of your love and your grace to them, you would draw them to your side. And for those in the room that have heard the gospel, some of them may be hearing the gospel for the thousandth time. May our hearts be moved to worship as we revel what you have done for sinners such as us. Jesus, I confess my sin before you. I confess my anger before you, Lord, even today, my frustration before you today, Lord. Lord, I'm thankful that you cleanse us, that you redeem us, that you are the mediator and the ransom for us, Jesus. We give thanks to you for that. Jesus, may you be glorified. Would you bar me from saying anything that would not be edifying to this church and glorifying to you, Lord? In your name we pray, amen. Thank you, you could be seated. So for those of you that may be joining uh, with us and visiting with us at the Point Community Church, what was our, what I say is our meat and potatoes of what we do as far as the sermon is, we choose a book of the Bible and then we just preach our way through that book of the Bible, kind of chunk by chunk as we move our way through it. And so we've already covered the first chapter. We move now into the second chapter. Now in the first chapter of the book of Timothy, the targeted audience that Paul is writing to Timothy about, the targeted audience is Pastor Timothy. And so by extension, he's talking to pastors such as me. And so like certainly this would apply to the congregation, but for the most part, 
As you see Paul giving these instructions to Timothy, I urge you, Timothy, to confront false teachers. I urge you to do this, to charge certain teachers not to teach. Maybe you as a congregation was thinking like, go get them pastors and elders for the church. And hopefully you gave praise to the Lord that you've got elders that are heeding those instructions and doing those things. But in chapter two, it changes. The, not the tone doesn't change. There's still this military flavors we're speaking about, but the targeted audience changes. Now the targeted audience is, is the congregation. Now, certainly the pastors, we're, we're enabling this to happen. We're, we're supporting the congregation in this happening, but now he's speaking to, like, to you. Right? He's speaking especially what he does here is Paul gives a set of instructions, and then he wants to apply those instructions to a certain people group. So what he starts off with in the first part is to the men. So Paul is speaking to the men, and then he's going to give targeted instructions to the men. And then later on, starting, I think, in verse number nine, he's going to speak to the women. And then he's going to give targeted instructions to the women. And so today we get to talk about the men. And hold on, next week we'll get into one of the most controversial texts in the entire Bible as we talk about the role of women in the church, as we talk about the women. But today it's for the men. So men, I hope that you've got steel in your snow boots that you wore in this morning because this is convicting and it should be. And we see the breakdown of that. We see this in the text. See in verse eight, that's kind of the who he's speaking to and is even this level of instruction in verse, number, um, in verse number eight where he says, I desire then that in every place the men, so that's who I'm speaking to, but the instructions for the men have just come in the first seven verses of chapter two. This is what I'm instructing you to do, but here it is in summation. Look at it with me. Verse number eight, I desire then in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or without quarreling. Now, some of you in the room, you go like, why would Paul say that? Well, here is why. Because men, we have a bend towards argumentation. And I know what you're thinking, the men in the room and the men watching. Here's what you're thinking. No, we don't. Yes, you do. No, no, we don't. Yes, we do, right? Like, we feel that, that yes, we do. We have this bend towards argumentation. That's why he says men should not be, um, they should not be bent towards quarreling. He's rebending us with instructions from the Lord. Second, men, we have a bend towards anger for the most part, do we not? Especially when it's anger about a perceived injustice that we, we, we see in the world. Like when we see an injustice happening, there is a, sometimes a right anger, a righteous anger that rises up in us. But even in, the, in this verse number eight, even in the picture that Paul is giving, he says here that men should lift holy hands without anger or without quarreling. I want you to think about what's kind of the, the international sign for anger. It's this right here. It's, it's a fist raised in, I mean, there's an iconic picture, right, of a fist being raised towards injustice and anger. But as you think about a mob, if you think about a riot, what are you thinking about? You're thinking about the fist being raised. I'm shaking my fist at whatever's making me angry. I'm shaking my fist at you even sometimes, God, or I'm shaking my fist at, right? Like some of you, you, you feel that. When a wrestler walks into the ring, he walks into the ring like, Bruh, you know, I'm ready to roll. I'm with anger. I'm ready to quarrel. I'm ready to break down. And some of us, we feel this in our hearts. And what Paul is saying is, 
Men, our posture should no longer be this, but it should be this. And those are two different pictures, are they not? One is a picture of anger and I'm getting ready to throw fists. And the other picture is a picture of submission and surrender and humility. And what Paul says is holiness. Like this is why we lift up our hands during worship. You'll see me sometimes as I sing, what am I doing? I'm lifting up holy hands. And what I'm saying in lifting up holy hands is I'm saying, Lord, I surrender. I surrender to the truths. I lift you on high. I lift you up. My fist isn't like this towards you anymore, God, because I understand who you are and what you've done for me and you've changed my hands. So now I can lift up my hands open-handed. Men are bent towards anger. We're bent towards argumentation. We're bent towards, we have a bias towards action. Most of us, we ask the question like, hey, what is it we need to do? And sometimes prayer can seem like it's getting in the way of action. But sometimes prayer can feel like it's inactivity rather than the most important and vital activity in the church. Some of you go like, hey, what do we need to do? And there's sometimes we need to do stuff, right? Sometimes we need to put, put down salt and get scrapers out. We need to do stuff. There's things that need to be done. But coupled with that, we also have to see prayer as the most vital part. In fact, that's what he's saying. We'll go back up to verse number one. Look at this with me. Prayer is the priority. In these instructions given now to the congregation of the church, Paul kind of numbers them with, with us. First of all, then, that's the priority of prayer. First of all, I urge that supplication and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people. Men, is prayer a priority in your life? Christian men, men of the Point Community Church, is prayer a priority in your life? You say, Pastor Andy, we're like eight minutes in, dude, you're already on me. Yes, yes. But is it a priority in your life? Then in fact, in chapter two, what Paul is giving here is he's giving instructions into public worship. We'll see that as we get into next week as he talks about kind of the dress code for what women should wear to church, right? Like we'll see that next week. This is a call to what public worship should look like. And what Paul is saying in chapter two, it should look like men leading in prayer in public. In public worship in here, in your small group, in your DNA, but as men, you should be leading in prayer. Now, I got to be honest with you. I ha we haven't done it in some time, but I've been part of church prayer groups. I've been part of groups where they say, hey, we're going to get together on a, one church. It was on Tuesday night. One church, it was a Monday night. We're going to have a whatever night of the week prayer group. And what happens is, generally speaking, is what happens in these is for the first few weeks, you get like several people that'll come or maybe the first month, you'll have a lot of people. But what ends up happening is you end up with one or two men and three or four women coming together to pray. And what Paul is saying here is, no, it should be a room full of men, godly men, humble men who understand the role and the importance and the priority of prayer coming together in prayer. But there is a priority for men to be men of prayer in the church. We need to look like that. One of the reasons why we're preaching through the book of 1 Timothy isn't because we're getting all of these things right as a church. But there's a level of 1 Timothy that's gonna be corrective to us. 
We talked about that as we come into, we 15 years as a church is behind us. We're coming into a new age where we're, we're heading now towards year 20 and then 25. And we want the word of God to instruct us and to correct us. And I do believe this is a place where we need to be corrected. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking. This seems very stereotypical. To say that men are bent towards argumentation and action and, and anger, that seems so stereotypical, right? And it, and it, it is. There are some men who, 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 do, who do see prayer as a priority. There are some men who are laid-back men. There are not every man is, um, is an argumentative or an angry man. But what Paul says that, and we're going to see that again even next week, I think. Some women will be like, hey, I don't care about what I look like on the outside. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about what's inside. And you're going to say, that feels like a stereotype. But listen, just because something's a stereotype, what that means is it's generally true. That's what it means. And when Paul uses this and he uses, and he's speaking these words of instruction to men and to women, it's not rooted into uh, what, what was contemporary in Paul's day. Paul's not reacting to necessarily just what he's seeing in the church of Ephesus. I'm not reacting to just what I'm seeing here. But the truth of the matter is throughout chapter two, again, we'll see it next week. Throughout chapter two, there is the echo of the Garden of Eden in this. That what Paul is using as his, as his experience isn't Ephesus, but what he's using is he's using Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter for Genesis chapters one through three. In fact, this entire section is suffused with the storyline of Genesis one through three. God tells Adam and Eve and the serpent in Genesis chapter three how sin is going to affect them. And he says sin is going to affect them in particular ways. Their sin in the garden is going to lead to more sin. And even for them, their sins that they will commit are going to be in very particular ways. And whenever Paul writes this in chapter 2, he's not pressing against what was contemporary in, his, in the church at Ephesus. In the same way, I'm not pressing against what's contemporary in our church. What I'm pressing against is what is in, true of Adam and true of the fall, and true of most men. That what Paul's pressing against here, we would call is Adamic sin. That's the sin of Adam. And what we see in Adam is we see a bias towards passive spiritual activity. That in fact, we could say Adam probably sinned before Eve sinned. And as Eve is standing there getting tempted from the serpent, Adam's just standing there doing nothing. What a lot of men do passive spiritual activity. And the truth of the matter is what Paul's saying here is don't be like Adam. Don't be like that, that old part of you, that edemic sin that is angry and passive and weak, but be like Jesus, the new Adam, who's strong and he's humble and he's godly. Don't shirk responsibility, spiritual responsibilities in the church, in the home, men. That's what Adam did. He shirked responsibility toward his wife. We see the effects of that happening. And what he's saying here to you and to me as men is don't shirk those responsibilities. You have a spiritual obligation as leaders in the home to lead your family, to love your family, and to be like Jesus and to assume responsibility. Talk about those things in your home. I hope that you do as well. We talk about the sins of Adam. The sin of Adam was passivity when it comes to spiritual things. It was to shirk responsibilities. 
instead of shouldering the God-given responsibilities that God had laid on his shoulders to care for a wife, to love her, to support her, to send her towards health. I mean, why didn't he get out a gun and shoot the serpent, right? Why didn't he chop his head off? Why didn't he do something other than allowing his wife to be tempted? So don't be like that. Be like Jesus. That's the point. We see this in the text. Jesus lays down his life. He sacrifices. He's a ransom. He's a mediator. He's a leader. He's humble and he's godly. And that's the point of the text. We close up right now. Be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. So men who pray. The church needs godly men who pray. You go, well, like, okay, then who are we to pray for? Well, that's verse number two, right? Or even we go even verse number four. First of all, first of all then, stay in verse one, I'm sorry. First of all then, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings, these are types of prayers. These are types of prayers. In supplication, you're asking for things. You're making your needs known before God, who's a provider, who wants to give. You're declaring your need. You're laying that before him. You're tapping into the provision of the Lord. That's what supplications are. Some of you students, you understand this. Lord, I need an A. Lord, give me wisdom on this test. Lord, give me the answers. You know, we understand this. It's a supplication. There's a real need here. And we're asking the Lord to meet that real need. And he does that. And he loves it when we ask him for things. Number two is prayers. This is just general prayers, general communion with God. Number three, he talks about intercession. What intercession is, is this is asking God to work on behalf of someone else. So you're asking God, not just to bless you, but you're asking God, God, bless this person over here. God, give this person wisdom. God, help this person. You're interceding for this person. Number four, thanksgivings. And this is giving thanks to God. Let me just say that Thanksgiving is no small thing. It's no small thing. And in fact, when God levies judgment and Paul picks this up in Romans chapter one, one of the reasons why judgment comes is because they refuse to give thanksgiving to God. They refuse, Paul says, to give thanks. It's Romans 1.21, for although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. And so God's judgment comes. But notice next, what's given next is the subject of our prayers, our supplications, our intercessions, and our thanksgiving. Who are we praying for? Well, look, for all people, for all people. But then Paul says, let me give you a list that maybe this, these type people may not fall on your list. And so look at verse number two. In particular, he's saying we're praying for kings and for all who are in high, place, high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. What we are doing is we're praying, look, we're praying for governmental leaders, not to governmental leaders. We're praying for them. This is a form of intercession that he's speaking about. But we're praying for them. We're praying for political leaders, for our mayors, for governors, for representatives, senators, Congress, all the way up to the king or we have an elected president very different than a king, but we have a president and we're praying for those people. We go, okay, then to what ends? Paul gives us that. Notice it's what, what ends are we? They're, we're praying for them, but we're praying for them in, in a particular way. Now you can pray for them that they would be saved and you could pray for them that they would 
you know, other things that they may need. If, uh, if one gets sick, you can pray for their health. You can pray for all those certain things. But look, Paul wants to point us as a church that there should be a, an area of um, paramount concern for us. There's an area of paramount concern that we have. And notice what it is, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. I think if we could just summarize that, we would summarize it as what we're praying for is we're praying for religious freedom. That's what we're praying for. We're praying for these political governmental leaders. And what we're praying God to do is to allow them to function as the government has been established to function so that you and I can live out in the, in the freedom, in peace, that we can live for God, that we can live quiet lives, dignified in every way. See, Paul writes in Romans chapter 13 that the government is a servant of God and their job from God that they've been tasked to do is to punish those who do evil and to protect those who do good. And now Paul's saying a working government, it's a good thing. And whenever the government functions like that and evildoers are punished and the people that do good, that follow the law, the citizens are, they, they are protected and there's peace there, that Christianity flourishes in that kind of environment. But notice that peaceful, quiet, dignified, godly life, that's not the ends of our prayer. That isn't the ultimate goal of our prayer. The ultimate goal of Christianity isn't for you and I to live middle-class, prosperous, happy lives in this world. That's not the goal. The goal for us as the church isn't just that we would live a peaceable and a good and a quiet life, but the ultimate goal is so that we can do what we're doing here, that we may preach the gospel. The undoubtedly, the goal of religious freedom in Paul's mind, as it should be in our minds, is so that the gospel may flourish and the gospel may spread. That the mission that Jesus has sent us on to make disciples, that it would take place and that it would flourish. That's why we're praying these sorts of things. See, this may be rooted in contemporary. As you read Acts chapter 19, what you have is you have Paul in the city of Ephesus establishing, he's preaching the gospel, he's establishing the church and a riot breaks out. What happens is, is what Paul is preaching the gospel, the implications of the gospel start to take effect in the city and it, it starts to uh, change the economy of the city. And you've got all these silversmiths that used to sell these little idols to people, but now they're like, hey, we don't need those anymore. Those are broken idols. And there's a riot among basically what would be the union of the silversmiths that come against Paul. And they start beating the bejeebus out of the apostle Paul. And what happens is a governmental official, a town clerk steps in and quiets it, puts a quell to it. He does what he's supposed to do, right? He stops the evil from happening and protects the person that's doing good. And Paul may have had that in, in a frame of mind. I mean, Paul gets run out of town in Ephesus so he can no longer establish the church. He'll return, continue establishing the church. Then guess what happens? Run out of town again. And that's the storyline of Paul. And what Paul's saying is, it's easier for me to plant churches and to preach the gospel in peaceable cities rather than cities where I'm always getting beat up, thrown in jail, and run out of town. Now, certainly we understand that, and we can see this in the scriptures, in the book of Acts. We see this throughout history, that God uses persecution of the church to purify, I mean, uses, yeah, persecution of the church to purify the church. There's a purifying effect on the church through persecution. In fact, some of the areas some of the continents and countries where Christianity is the most persecuted, it's the places where it is 
flourishing the most globally. God always has a plan. We see that throughout the book of Acts. We see that throughout church history. So certainly he can use persecution. But what he's saying here is if you're living a peaceable life, if you're allowed to evangelize, if you're allowed to gather and assemble and preach and pray, now what I want you to do is I want you to leverage that and cash that in for the sake of evangelism. So you may win the lost to Jesus. That's the goal. That's what we're, that's what we're after. Notice in verse number three, it says, this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God, our savior. It's a pleasing thing that we live in a peaceable society. It's a pleasing thing to God that you and I, that we enjoy the freedoms that we currently enjoy. It's a good and great thing that we do this. But listen, he's saying, use that, use that peace, use that quietness, use that godliness, use the dignity of your life, the difference that Jesus has made, use that as an evangelistic strategy. See, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11, Paul says this, kind of a similar thing. He'll tell the church in Thessalonica, aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, work with your hands as we've instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. But listen, the ends of that kind of life, of being quiet, minding your own affairs and working hard and being dignified, of being a good neighbor, of being a good neighbor, shoveling your neighbor's driveway, checking on your neighbor, I'm not throwing parties and making loud music. We don't have to show a hands, but how many of you have had that kind of neighbor? I know folks, I know folks associated with the Point Community Church that have moved because of their neighbors. Some of you have experienced that. You've had that kind of neighbor, the neighbor with the pesky dog. Oh, that's me. I'm sorry. Those of you who live in Collins Lane, I'm so sorry. Those of you that do, though, you have barking dogs and you have, you know, they've got a place that that's, if that's the kind of lifestyle you want to live, they have a place for that. It's called Bald Knob. Move out in Bald Knob. That's where you can do all those kinds of things. But if you live in a subdivision, be a good neighbor. Be a good neighbor. Don't be that neighbor, but be a good neighbor. That's what he's saying. But why are you doing that? You're doing that so that you can build equity with your neighbors. You're building equity with those, as Paul says there, on those who are on the outside so that you can cash it in for the glory of Jesus and for the spread of the gospel not just to be good people, but it's, there's a purpose in that. Moving on, we'll look at verses four through seven. He's saying all of that is pleasing unto God, but he's also saying, look at what he's saying here in verses four through seven. What we have in verses four through seven is we have the belief that undergirds the behavior. Then in 1 Timothy, we've talked about that for the last couple of weeks, that what Paul's doing in 1 Timothy is he's talking about, he's talking about belief, that undergirds our behavior. So he's talking about two things. Here's how we should act. And here's the truths that lead us to act in that way. So I'm not just being legalistic when I say this to you, this is what you should do. But he's saying it's rooted in, in, in the truths of scripture. It's rooted in who God is and what God has done for you and who he's made you to be. It's rooted in those kinds of things. And so we have had the behavior. The behavior is men who don't argue, who aren't given to anger, who don't quarrel, and they don't create divisions within the church, but rather we're men of humility and prayer and evangelism. That's the behavior. You say, what undergirds all that? Well, verses four through seven, that's what undergirds it. 
He says, uh, speaking about God, we said this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God and our Savior. There's a comma there, verse number four, who desires, that's God. He desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Verse number six, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, Paul says. I'm, I'm telling the truth. I am not lying. Thanks, Paul. That's good to know that you're not lying. He goes on to say, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. What we see here is belief that leads us to be men of prayer and mission. What's the belief that undergirds that? Well, the first belief, and there'll be four of these, is that the gospel is for everyone. God desires for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's God's desire. That's God's will. Now notice verse number four, that's not universalism. Some would say if it's God's will for all people to be saved, then certainly God can perform that. But Paul's not saying that. Paul's not saying that eventually all people will be saved because that is God's desire. What Paul is doing is he's, pressing against the elitism of Judaism in the church of Ephesus. Remember back in chapter one, there's these false teachers who are speculating about genealogies. And we talked about how in a genealogy, they're creating hierarchies as to basically who's in, who's out, what order you're to be in. That no doubt the church at Ephesus is a divided church. It was a mostly pagan church that included some Jews in it as well. And the Jews have kind of come in and evidently they've kind of bullied their way to the top. And now what Paul is teaching is he's reminding them that the gospel unites. So the same church, Paul has written another letter to that church that, uh, a few years pri- uh, prior to that, the letter um, known as the book of Ephesians. In the book of Ephesians, Paul declares that. He declares that the gospel has united Jew and Gentile. In fact, he says it tears down the walls of hostility. Can you see the men in the church? building those walls back up of hostility through their anger and their quarreling and their arguing and their who's on top and all of those things. And Paul's already said, hey, those walls have been torn down. He's saying, Timothy, don't let men build those walls back up. The gospel is for everyone. And you and I in the room that know the gospel, that believe the gospel, we would say yes to that, would we not? We would say, absolutely, the gospel is for anyone and for everyone, for whosoever will, whoever will hear and bend their knee and repent and would come. And I would say, yes, that is so true. And we believe it in theory and we believe it in theology, but do we practice it with our lives? Do we practice that as a church in the way that we welcome one another? See, Paul writes into Romans 15 and he says, in the same way that Christ has welcomed you into his family, you and I are to welcome others into this family. We would say the gospel is for everyone. And I would say, and this church exists for everyone. And our attitude should match that by the people that come in, by the people who walk in. We should offer a hearty and warm and receiving welcome to those who may be on the outside regardless of their income level or the clothes that they wear or their actions that they've had on the night before. That being on home street has changed things for us. 
Rarely did we have visitors find us in the leaky old factory, right? We could deal with parking lots. Like, I'm done dealing with leaks in the ceiling, praise the Lord. We could deal with other things. We could deal with boilers that sometimes, you know, do their own thing. But, you know, 40, it was 47 in here one day this week. You're like, why didn't we bottle some of that for this morning, right? Now it's 94 in here, right? We could deal with those things. But when we were over at the factory, rarely did we have people walk in off the street. But here we have people walk in off the street. And do we welcome them? Do we let them know that, hey, we're a loving congregation? We welcome you. Because again, what Paul says is welcome them in the same way that Christ has welcomed you. So I want you to picture a rich person from suburbia, right? Or richer, middle-class suburbia that comes down off the hill and parks in our parking lot and walks in and they have nice clothes on. They understand what they're supposed to wear here at church. And then I want you to picture another man that wanders down Home Street in his coveralls that are wet and stained and walks in. Which one are we most likely to welcome? And then what I want you to think about is which one were you when Jesus welcomed you into his family? Who were you in that picture? The person with it all, right, looking like he had it all together? Or like the disheveled, homeless, whatever. And so we say sometimes, yes, the gospel's for everyone, but I want us to be a church that welcomes everyone, that tends to the needs of everyone, that's open to everyone, that cares with, about everyone, regardless of their economic status, regardless of their, certainly their color, regardless of any of those things. Lord, do away with all of those things in our hearts. I love this text of scripture as well, because I know oftentimes it enters into our mind. And I talked about this uh, back when we were talking about prayer. It enters into our mind is what is God's will for my life? You ever ask yourself that question or maybe you've prayed that about, God, what is it you want me to do? What is your will? If it be your will, God, is, and we have these lists of things. We stand at a fork of the road. Some of you that are students, you may be standing there now thinking, what college am I going to go to? What boy to date or girl to date? The answer is none, neither. Stay single until Jesus brings you a mate until you're about 25 Whatever it may be, maybe in front of you, some of you, you find yourselves there and you go, what is God's will for me? And here we have in this text of scripture, God's revealed will for you. You don't have to guess. You don't have to get out a, a daisy. Does he love me? Does he love me not? Is it this or that? You don't have to flip a coin. You don't have to do any, meeny, money mo. What's God's will for you? It's right here. It's revealed. His will for you is that you would be saved and that you would come to a knowledge of the truth. See, we have such a clear picture of what salvation is. The salvation is something that we do cognitively, not just emotionally, although we do it. It's not just something that we believe, but look at what he says, that you would come to a knowledge. That's cognitive. That is knowing something, that you come to this thing that you understand something. And what is it that you are to understand? Well, you understand the truth, the truth about God, and the truth about yourself, the truth about Jesus, the truth that God is holy and you are not, that God is perfect and you are not, the truth that you are a sinner 
who have sinned against him. You've been condemned by the law, and yet God sent his son Jesus into the world to die for sinners such as you and I. Jesus has come condemned under, or Jesus came and died the death that you and I deserve and was resurrected and ascended on high. That the gospel is a proclamation of truth. Just like gravity is a proclamation of truth, is it not? Sir Isaac Newton didn't, dis, he didn't invent gravity. He didn't discover gravity. He came to grips with gravity, right? As the story goes, when the apple fell from the tree and hit the mug in the head, he's like, something pulled that down and it wasn't me. And he's like, it must be this thing called gravity. And then he wrote a song, right? And John Mayer covered that song years later. on the cuff. In the same way, it was an objective truth that he came to grips with. And the gospel is an objective truth that sooner or later, every human being will come to grips with. It is the objective truth that God is holy and no one can stand near him in his presence with sin. It is an objective truth that every human being has sinned against him. As the apostle Paul says, all, that's everyone, that's all inclusive. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But what we get to marvel in and glory in is in the beauty of the gospel that we see even being portrayed in this text. Notice as Paul teaches us the absolute truth of who Jesus is. The gospel is this. The truth that we must acknowledge is this. The announcement has come. It is the announcement of the terms by which men shall be saved. It's only through this repentance and faith in Jesus. We're being commanded. The gospel is not, as my friend Brian Hendricks reminded me this week on Facebook through an A.W. Pink uh, quote, the gospel is not an invitation left for you to accept or decline. It's not an RSVP if you want to come to heaven. It's an announcement. It's a proclamation of the truth. And what it does is it announces that God is holy and we are not. It announces the good news that despite our sin, that God has sent his son Jesus to come and to be a mediator. That's the go in between. There is a huge chasm between God and us as men, and no man can stand in it. No man can bridge that gap. Your morality is not good enough. Your dignified life, your quiet life, the life that he's describing back there in, um, in verse number two, that peaceful, quiet, moral, dignified life, that gives evidence to our salvation. It does not win us our salvation. Salvation has come through Jesus and Jesus alone. He says that we have one God and one mediator. And that mediator, his name is Jesus. He is a man. That's what Paul says. He's Christ Jesus, the man, because in Jesus being both God and man, in God, he can identify with God as being perfect and holy. And in being a man, he can identify with us as being weak men. Weak men. Sinful men, even though Jesus never sinned, 
Jesus is tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin, and yet he can identify with the weakness that sin brings, the weakness of humanity, the frailness of us, the temptations that we feel. He knows what those are like because he has felt them. Jesus is that mediator who stands in between. He stands in the place where your and my, where our morality and our religious fervor and all of those sorts of things that we want to use like a ladder. We want to use them like a ladder to try to climb up to the top to say like, okay, I'm not as bad as I thought I was, or I'm not as bad as certainly some of these other people in here. And that's probably true. But the reality is, again, what Paul says, we all fall short of the glory, of the standard of righteousness and holiness. But the good news is Jesus has come as a mediator, not just a mediator, but as a ransom. He's given up his life. He's laid down his life. He allowed his life to be taken from him. He's laid it down. Why did Jesus die on a cross? Because the wages of sin, your sin, my sin is death. And Jesus, sit, and Jesus is nailed to a cross where Jesus dies on that cross. Jesus lays down his life. and He lays it down as a testimony of God's justice and grace and God's love. He's laid down his life as a ransom. In fact, Jesus said that about himself in Mark chapter 10. He says, for even the son of man, that's what Jesus called himself. If you were to go back in time and find Jesus, Jesus, who are you? He would say, I'm the son of man. And it's from uh, Daniel chapter seven, I believe it is. Even though the son of man, that's a, that's a picture of both his deity and his humanity in one term, the son of man, he said, came not to be served, but to serve. And how did he serve? He served by giving up his life as a ransom for many. But the one way of salvation, it involves a mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. In order for God to be reconciled to sinful man, man had, man had to pay for his sin. But the price was death. Because the wages of sin is death, Jesus became the ransom, the sacrifice the one who paid the price to release us from the bondage to sin and to judgment. And this ransom is sufficient for all who will receive it. Jesus's life, death, and resurrection is a testimony of the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy and justice of God. You never have to question God's love or God's grace or God's mercy or God's justice in your life. sometimes have to question other humans' love in our lives. We sometimes have to question their mercy and their grace in our lives, but we never have to question God's love or God's mercy or God's grace or even God's justice. We don't have to question those things because it's not something that's subjective that we feel in our hearts, but it's something that's objective that he's done on a cross. You don't have to wonder, does God love me? And look inside of your own heart, thinking of those things you think objectively, you look to a cross that's outside of you on that he is displaying his great grace and his mercy and his love for sinners such as you and I. You may be here this morning, you may say, how can I be saved? How can I go to heaven? How can I know God? It's very simple. You acknowledge the truth. You acknowledge the truth that the gospel declares that you're a sinner. You can't save yourself. Paul says he took all of those self-saving 
projects that he'd worked all those years on in religion and memorization and trying to be a good person and trying to be a good Jew. He said he took all of those things and he threw them into the garbage. He counted them as dung is what he says. For the sake of the gospel, you acknowledge that truth, you believe upon the mediation of Jesus and you embrace the sacrifice of Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you know the gospel and you believe the gospel and you're saved, for us men in the room that feel so beat up, like you, you just had to endure 40 minutes of this sermon. I've had to endure a week of this sermon. You look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. So writer Hebrew says he's the author and the perfecter of our faith. Isn't there good news in that? He has initiated and authored your faith, your Christianity, your walk. And look, look, he just didn't start it. You, you weren't just like a, a toy that you wind up and let go of. He just didn't rev you back and then let go of you and hope that you make it to the end. He's the author and the perfecter. He gave you his spirit and he's perfecting you. And that perfection looks like repentance and faith. The same way that you got saved is the same way you stay saved. It's the same way you grow. It's the same way you sanctify. Repentance and faith. And if you're a man and you're stuck in passivity when it comes to spiritual things, or when it comes to physical things, you're ready to grab a bull by a horn. You'll protect your family, lay down your life for your family and physical things. You'll go toe-to-toe with somebody, hoping somebody breaks in that house, right? And itching for a reason to go toe-to-toe with somebody. When it comes to spiritual things like prayer, sharing the word with your family, asking your kids what they're learning about Jesus. That's Adam. Don't be like Adam. Be like Jesus. And if you look in the mirror today and you say, I'm like Adam. I'm like Adam. I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not shouldering responsibility in my home for spiritual things. I'm not shouldering responsibility in my church for spiritual things. I'm, I'm not discipling people around me. I'm just living life. And if that's you, then... The good news of the gospel is Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Repent and believe. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your great gospel. Thank you for what you have done, what we could not do on our own. We could not do it. And yet you did it in our our place. A perfect savior died in our place. God, we give you thanks for that. Jesus, may you be praised for that. May we all in this room, may we embrace the sacrifice that you've made for us, Jesus. May we offer thanksgiving to you. May we remind ourselves of the great grace and love that you have. May your love awaken our love. Even in the next few minutes as we eat this bread and we drink this juice, may this be a reminder your great grace toward us. In your name we pray, amen.